the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is the second part of episode 0.19, Signs. All of these Ot episodes are designed to help us build our Pope Colored Glasses so we can look at history together. We're currently in the middle of our rosary-themed tour of the Second Testament, a.k.a. the New Testament, and in fact we've got layers upon layers going on since we're, yet more specifically, in the middle of our mega-episode based on the first luminous mystery, which is the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. It's a mega-episode because I decided it would be a good idea to walk through all seven sacraments in one place, and I ran out of normal episode time yesterday after covering exactly one sacrament, namely baptism. So if you want to start at the beginning of our tour of the sacraments, check out the episode that came out yesterday, Ot.19a, and if you want to start at the beginning of our rosary-themed Second Testament survey, you can go to Ot.14 from last November. By the way, I try to say First or Second Testament in order to not dismiss Judaism as old. Jews have had enough of a rough go of things as is. Okay, now I've been teasing an announcement the last few episodes, and it's time to make good on that with not one, but two announcements, first about the future of the Popular History Podcast, and then about a new Popular History Project, Cardinal Numbers. But there's a lot to talk about, and I don't want to make folks who are just trying to catch up on my back catalog and or learn about confession sit through all that before I get to what they're actually here for. So, I'm releasing a separate Future Plans Announcement episode and a trailer for Cardinal Numbers to the Popular History feed today. In fact, they should both be there now. Check them out, and I'll meet you back here. Alright, welcome back, folks returning from that side trip. Now let's get into the topic of the day. Penance, reconciliation, or confession? Baptism takes care of your sin, but you can only get baptized once. So what do you do when you inevitably find some way to sin again? Well, you go to confession. Now, obviously, since only God has the power to forgive sins, you should pray and get your sins directly taken care of by God, right? No, of course not. For one thing, you want to be really quite sure that your sins are forgiven, because, yeah, this stuff matters. And, I don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time feeling confident I'd done confession right if it were just up to me to figure it out, given that the whole reason I'm needing to go to confession is because I didn't do things right in the first place. So, it's best to have someone other than yourself evaluating things, at least if you ask me, and for the purposes of this show. And the way the church has set things up is that that someone else is a priest. Specifically, a priest doing a special little metaphysical maneuver called acting in persona Christi which translates to acting in the person of Christ, which means, no, 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 you're not confessing to Father Sample, no, you're confessing to Jesus, and receiving absolution from Jesus, 
because Father Sample is acting in persona Christi. What does the sacrament look like? Well, first off, don't worry. I'm not going to pull up the actual rite for referencing this time. That was an informative example of what an actual sacramental rite is like, but we don't need seven such examples. That said, if we picture you having decided to go to confession, here's what you can expect. First step, examination of conscience. You need to reflect, as best you can, on what ill deeds you've gotten up to since the last time you got your soul cleaned off. There definitely was a last time, since baptism is required before you can receive any other sacrament, and baptism includes a thorough de-sinning. But of course, again, you can only do baptism once, so we're back to confession again. When you're doing an examination of conscience, your main target is any and all serious, potentially mortal sins. Keep in mind the rules from Op.18, and be ready to list off both number and kind when it comes to your more serious sins. Keep in mind the rules from Op.18 to help you distinguish, and be ready to list off both number and kind when it comes to your more serious sins. That particular phrasing, number and kind, has to be a quote from somewhere because it's extremely consistent verbiage across pretty much every explanation of this sacrament I've come across, but it doesn't appear to be coming directly from the catechism. Anyways, yes, you're supposed to say how many times you broke which commandment in serious matters. You don't have to go into graphic detail, just what's relevant. For instance, with sexual sins, it may be important to clarify whether you're married, but no, the priest isn't looking for your life story, he's just needing to know how to best classify your sin so he can assign you an appropriate penance. It's also useful to let the priest know how long it's been since your last confession for just this sort of context. Now, there's a good chance there's someone in line waiting to confess after you're done, so as tempting as it might be to make the confessional into a therapist's couch, keep in mind you can also typically get spiritual direction, which would be more along those lines, but which is also typically a separate appointment so that you don't monopolize the open-to-the-public confession times. Oh, and if you're wondering, yes, it is fairly common for folks to schedule an appointment for confession, with or without spiritual direction slash counseling, if the public hours don't fit their schedule, or if that's simply their preference for one reason or another. Maybe they want to go to a certain priest. Perhaps they don't like standing in line. Of course, the third scenario, where someone might be wanting to arrange a confession in a rush, is a life-threatening emergency, because you don't want to meet your maker with that ick on your soul. I know several priests who travel with their stole in case they come across or are summoned to a nasty crash, but it is worth noting that in the super-soaker version of confession that's more likely in such an emergency, there's no dress code. In fact, if we go full super-soaker mode, like everyone has a minute until the plane hits the mountainside, even something called general absolution is possible, where the priest tells all baptized folks looking to repent of their sins to reflect on their sins in their hearts while he absolves them all collectively. In such a scenario, those that take advantage of general absolution must be resolved to make a normal one-to-one -one confession where they actually tell the priest their sins within a year. General absolution is valid, but it is truly an emergency measure, not to be used lightly or as a replacement for regular confession. And to give you some peace of mind, in case you happen to be on a doomed plane without a priest, or in case Father is focusing on baptizing the unbaptized in that scenario, because um, they're going to need some help too, 
just know that God isn't limited by the sacraments he set up. If your life is flashing before your eyes, and you're regretting some of what you see, allow that regret to turn into repentance, and resolve that if you make it out alive somehow, you'll go to confession or get baptized in the normal way. But for now, just let God know you're sorry in your heart, and you trust and hope in God's forgiveness. By God's grace, even mortal sins can be overcome in such a priestless scenario, though as you can tell from the stipulation about still seeking a normal confession or baptism, whichever one is relevant to you, if you survive to do so, this is not intended to serve as an alternative to the normal approach to sacraments. Okay, let's get back from the land of perfect contrition, super soakers, and crashing planes. In a normal confession, you either arrive for your scheduled appointment, or you show up during the hours listed for confession in the bulletin, that is, the church newsletter, or the website, or wherever. If you're going the public route, there may be a line of folks waiting patiently, with the front of the line in the direction of where the confessions are actually taking place, but not too close as to avoid the risk of anyone overhearing anything. Obviously, modern confession is an extremely private thing, though this wasn't always the case, historically speaking. And yes, I'm going to talk about the seal of the confessional, but not yet, because we haven't even covered what a confessional is yet. Perhaps we need to talk about the garments everyone needs to wear for confession first. When it comes to validity, as I mentioned, the garments part is easy. There is no uniform, though that's easy to say as that's true of any sacrament. As for being licit, it is normal for the priest to wear a purple stole. Picture a scarf draped so that the middle is behind their neck and the ends drop down the front, one on each side, and that gives you a decent idea of the shape and wearing of a stole, though it'll be silk or similar cloth rather than anything knitted. The stole itself symbolizes the priesthood, and is fairly easy to have at the ready for confessions on demand or emergencies, as previously described. The purple color represents repentance, which I think is a bit odd given its other symbolism of royalty, but we're saving a deep dive into liturgical colors for 0.31. The purple stole is an ingrained enough custom that many Catholics wonder if it's required for validity of the sacrament, which, again, it isn't. As for the confessional, it's traditionally a little booth somewhere along the side or to the back of the main church. Or really, it's a couple of adjoining booths, since I don't think the reality of separate rooms with an adjoining screen is compatible with the definition of a booth. Very often, a curtain is available in the event that the person confessing would rather not have the priest know their identity, which is fair enough since sins are moral failings that most folks find embarrassing. Oftentimes, it's set up so that you can kind of choose whether you want to do face-to-face -face or behind some kind of screen. As you may well know, the understandable historical emphasis on privacy and discretion surrounding the confessional is seen to have played a role in the abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. And while I haven't studied that particular connection enough to say whether the perception of a connection there corresponds to reality, it is understandable, and it is certainly the case, that many a confessional has been redesigned in response to that bleak and still ongoing chapter in Catholic history. One misconception I've seen, and quite possibly an intentional tactic used by abusers, though again I haven't dug in to verify that angle, is the idea that the penitent, that is the person confessing their sins, is bound by the seal of the confessional, and that this prevents them from talking about what went on during confession. This is absolutely not the case. The seal of the confessional does not apply to the penitent. 
it only applies to the priest and anyone else who might happen to overhear because they sat too close, or there was a poorly timed pause in the music, or they're acting as a translator, which I have done confession, not through a translator, but pointing at my little um, English-French dictionary, finding uh, the uh, necessary words um, for the critical parts of the priest understanding um, what I was confessing. So that was an interesting experience. Um, but yes, so translators covered under the seal of confession. I probably still wouldn't use one. <laughs> I would use a book or find a priest that can do English, but I also know not everyone's lucky to have a priest that can do English, or not everyone's lucky enough to speak a language as common as English, though obviously I think my listeners are pretty well covered in that department. Anyways, yes, there is oftentimes ambient music during public confessions to help avoid the confessions being too public, which is a good idea, but I digress. Now, having brought up the seal of confession, and having confirmed that it absolutely does not apply to you, the person confessing, let's talk about what it means to those to whom it does apply. Normally, only the priest, thanks to whatever light chanting is going on that doesn't have any gaps, and uh, the way people are lining up with a gap, all in the interest of giving appropriate privacy. But if someone else does happen to hear something they shouldn't, they should know it's a thing best forgotten as the seal of the confessional applies to everyone who might overhear as well. To quote paragraph 1467 of the Catechism, the Church declares that every priest who hears confessions is bound, under very severe penalties, to keep absolute secrecy regarding the sins that his penitents have confessed to him. He can make no use of knowledge that confession gives him about penitents' lives. This secret, which admits of no exceptions, is called the sacramental seal, because what the penitent has made known to the priest remains sealed by the sacrament. End quote. But what is the penalty for breaking the seal of confession? I don't know if I've mentioned the Code of Canon Law before, but it's basically the internal rulebook for the Catholic Church, functioning pretty much like any other legal code, except instead of a geographic jurisdiction, it has a spiritual jurisdiction. Oh, and instead of physical or financial consequences, there are mostly spiritual ones. In this case, Canon 1388, Section 1, states, quote, A confessor who directly violates the seal of confession incurs an automatic excommunication reserved to the apostolic see. If he does so only indirectly, he is to be punished in accord with the seriousness of the offense. End quote. Automatic excommunication is reasonably self-explanatory. If we haven't dove into excommunication yet, don't worry, we will. And yes, automatic here means instant. As for reserved to the apostolic see, that means that only the bishop of the apostolic see, that is to say, the pope, can sign off on removing the automatic excommunication. That snippet from the Code of Canon Law does mention indirect violation of the seal, so, let's take a moment to talk about that. It's one thing for Father Samplay to straight out say, Becky confessed to me that she sold from the collection basket. That would be direct violation. It's another thing for Father to keep coughing and asking Becky if she has anything to say during the next stewardship council meeting she chairs. That would be indirect violation. Note that there is no provision in any of this to allow for the sort of mandatory reporting exceptions to confidentiality that are common in other generally confidential scenarios. In the U.S., 
and I'm sure pretty much everywhere else as well, your doctor or your therapist are going to pass word on to the authorities if they know or suspect child abuse. And to be clear, with this one exception, your priest will also do that, as they are mandatory reporters as well. But if they only know or suspect what they know or suspect because of the contents of your confession, the seal of confession applies. With all this said, there are indeed circumstances where a priest may ask for your permission to discuss your scenario with church higher-ups. They won't do that without permission, but it may be a condition for absolution. For example, if you're confessing a sin, the absolution of which is reserved to the Holy See. For example, if you defile the Eucharist. This is the church equivalent of your customer service rep asking if they can put you on hold while they talk with the supervisor. Except it's not quite that, because you're kind of talking to them in persona Christi, but it's, it's Vatican bureaucracy, it is what it is. Anyways, the seal of confession still applies. The case is discussed anonymously and in general terms. From what I can tell, the way this works is you and the priest would then make arrangements for you to come back at a later time to receive your penance and absolution. Though, if any of my priest listeners would like to enlighten us on what they would do in this scenario, because it's a little bit vague to me, by all means, reach out to popularhistory at gmail.com. That's popular, but with an E, because it's a Pope pun. So now, we've got our sins in mind. We can have confidence that this is going to stay secret, and we've made it into the booth. How can we be sure our confession is valid and licit, though? What's essential? Well, first off, my general advice for the laity, and if you have to ask, that means you're a member of the laity, don't worry about whether sacraments you're receiving are licit. It's not your role to determine that, and you cannot reasonably expect you will be given the information needed to determine that with absolute confidence because it's not your role to determine that. The bishop and his agents see to that, in part because, like we discussed when valid versus licit came up during our baptism chat, in the end, it's largely up to the bishop to determine what's licit. Plus, Pretty much everything that isn't a requirement for validity can be waived in the case of an emergency. Remember, when the plane is crashing, you're in the realm of super-soaker baptisms and general absolution, and the bishop may sign off on that when he takes a look at the situation. That's his call to make, not yours. But it is reasonable to expect that you'll have full confidence your confession is valid, so let's talk about what's required, at a minimum, for a confession to be valid. First, only a priest can grant absolution, and if you want to get technical, that ultimately is an ability that comes from the bishop by virtue of apostolic succession, since priests don't have apostolic succession themselves, and it's that apostolic succession that allows these clergymen to apply the words of the gospel, quote, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, end quote. To themselves. And for this, a deacon won't do. It must be a priest. Or a bishop, of course, because they're already a priest. Though, the further you rise in the church, the more you tend to let those on lower levels handle the day-to-day. -day. And really, lucidity, that word hurts, uh, licitness aside, any priest can hear a valid confession. In the case of imminent danger of death, even a priest who has been laicized can do it as long as they can understand what you're getting at, and really, 
Even then, since general absolution is an emergency possibility, I'd say that that doesn't sound like it's strictly necessary. Given that, as I understand it, in the case of general absolution, you don't have much of a speaking role as a penitent. You're not listing off your sins except in your heart. What you do have to do as the penitent, though, is be, well, penitent. You have to be sorry for your sins. And you can't be sorry, but still plan to resume your sins after confession. You have to have what's called a firm purpose of amendment. Not absolute confidence that you'll never fall to the same sin again, as confession is meant to help, not discourage, and some habits or addictions are very hard to break indeed. But you gotta have the conviction that, gosh darn it, you're gonna try, and hopefully this time your resolve, by God's grace, will stick. This firm purpose of amendment is required for validity of the sacrament of confession. Now, part of that firm purpose of amendment is accepting the penance the priest assigns to you, and penance is not necessarily going to be just prayers. It may involve some act of service, like if a child tells a priest he hit his brother, he may find himself getting tasked with doing something nice for his brother. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, a murderer may well be told he needs to turn himself into the civil authorities as a condition of absolution. After the sins are discussed, including mortal sins given in number and kind, it's not unusual for there to be a question of, basically, anything else from the priest to make sure you're done with your list and to help in case you might be forgetting anything. If you walk out of the booth and realize you did forget something, but it was an innocent mistake, don't sweat it and just bring it up at your next confession. If it's not a mistake and you just chose to intentionally hide something by leaving it off, think again, because, as I understand it, that would invalidate your whole confession, meaning you'd be leaving with the sins you came in with, plus a new sin of sacrilege, so that's really not recommended. I mean, why did you do this in the first place? Again, that's in the case of intentionally hiding, not of accidentally forgetting. After that last call moment, and feel free to even interrupt absolution if you start panicking about whether you really should confess something else, anyways, after that last call moment, the priest will inform you of your penance and instruct you to make your act of contrition, which is making a specific statement of repentance for the sins you just finished listing. Many folks will have a specific act of contrition memorized, but it's okay to use just about whatever words you want to use written out on a card or whatever you want to bring with you. Really, you can do that with your sins as well, but in that case, I'd keep a close eye on that card if I were you. I've seen the Vatican endorse a number of acts of contrition, most of which are a few sentences long, but the one that I like most is a mere 11 words. Quote, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. End quote. This particular prayer, the Jesus Prayer, actually has much deeper roots in orthodoxy than Catholicism, and since I'll admit I'm in favor of closer ties across the board, it was good to see a version of it in the Vatican News Roundup of Acts of Contrition I'll be adding to the show notes. After you make your act of contrition, it's time for absolution, during which the priest, as discussed previously, acts in persona Christi, meaning it really isn't the priest who acts, but Christ who acts through him. As with the baptismal formula, there is some key wording in the prayer of absolution, namely the final Trinitarian invocation. Quote, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. End quote. For the wording leading up to that, though, 
there is some leeway. For example, the older pre-Vatican II form may still be used, and actually the current formula is right in the middle of a minor revision, which is currently in preliminary use, and which will come into full effect on Divine Mercy Sunday this year. That's April 16th, 2023, for those of you keeping score at home. Here's what that will sound like in the voice of the podcast personal Jesus, Isaac. Come, Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of his Son, has reconciled the world to himself, poured out the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sin, through the ministry of the Church, may God grant you pardon and peace. I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that last critical section, the priest will also be blessing you with the sign of the cross, a gesture we'll delve into more in Op.28. Once absolution is done, you say, Amen. Then, the priest gives you some form of encouraging recap, letting you know your sins are forgiven so you can go in peace. I usually thank the priest at this point. Seems like the right thing to do, even though it's not required. After that, you make your way out of the confessional and back into the main church. It's not strictly required that you do your assigned penance immediately, but it's certainly best practice to get it done as soon as possible, and most often it'll be a few prayers you can knock out in a few minutes while you're still in the church. Whatever your penance is, once it's done, congratulations! Your soul is clean, and your sins are forgiven. Now you can go to communion without any sweat. At least, not until your next mortal sin. Good luck out there. Oh, You're uh, remembering Father Hood from last episode? Yeah, it is a rough world out there when even the church can get turned around for years on who's even a priest. Well, perhaps some of the words the Archdiocese of Detroit put out in a press release at the time can be a source of peace. Quote, The church, following St. Thomas Aquinas, maintains that God has bound himself to the sacraments, but he is not bound by the sacraments. This means that while we can have certainty that God always works through the sacraments, When they are properly conferred by the minister, God is not bound by the sacraments in that he can and does extend his grace in a sovereign way. We can be assured that all those who approached fatherhood in good faith to make a confession did not walk away without some measure of grace and forgiveness from God. Or you can always do what I do and avoid the whole state of Michigan. Okay, folks, thanks for tuning in. We covered exactly one sacrament today, a worthy follow-up to our having covered exactly one sacrament yesterday. If you think you're noticing a pattern, you aren't, as the remaining sacraments will take us less time individually, so we'll go through them all next time, even if it kills me. Next time we'll be on March 25th, The Assumption. If you're wondering about our release schedule, popular history can be random, but our schedule isn't, except for when things need to be moved for family matters. I try to put out a new main episode once per solemnity, so 17 episodes a year, okay. When I say it like that, it does still sound random, but in a few months, things will get a lot more predictable, because you'll have something new every day between popular history and cardinal numbers. Again, go check out that announcement separately on this feed. As usual, I'd like to thank my Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History, for her counsel and support, as well as everyone who helped our household get through the birthday rollover season this year. I'd also like to thank our logo designer, Russ, my informal orthodoxy-sounding board, Michael, and I'd also like to thank our voice of Jesus, Isaac, for calling in across 2,000 years and many miles. Speaking of voices, I'd also like to thank Joey for his vocal support yesterday, Patrick for his vocal support today, 
and Catherine for her upcoming vocal support as we continue our journey through the sacraments in the next installment. I'd also like to give a special shout out to Bree and Fry from Pontifax for their consistent support through the years, not to mention the other Rexypod and non-Rexypod hosts who have been so supportive of my habit, especially the Discord community. The history podcasting community as a whole is amazing. Most importantly, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in and encouraging others to do the same. Personal referrals through word of mouth are still the best way to grow a podcast, and your support means a great deal to me. Your feedback matters, too. So always remember you can reach me at popularhistory at gmail.com or just leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. See you all on the 25th. Thanks again. God bless y'all.